So the first six months of 2020 have been quite a ride. They have been some combination of historic, confusing, catastrophic, interesting, overwhelming, and you know all that. And you probably also know that there have been suggestions about what the next six months are going to bring. Uh, I even heard of a Tennessee sheriff who asked the residents of his county to stop flushing their drugs down the toilet because he did not want to meet up with any any more hyper-aggressive alligators who had ingested meth. (laughs) So I was forced to admit that as I was sort of rehearsing the things that could go wrong, the possibility of meth gators was uh, not on that list. But um, as we move deeper into the summer and as we take some tentative steps to to move out of sheltering in place, as we continue with racial discussions, as the economy tries to reboot, as schools prepare to reopen even as COVID numbers spike, I thought it prudent to uh, set the jokes aside and to mine some uh, insights from some biblical characters who had to deal with their own version of a 2020. As a general rule, we look to Jesus for our example. Um, Of course, Jesus is far more than just an example. He is our savior. He does for us what we don't need to do for ourselves. Uh, we are rescued by Christ, and the work that he does is finished, and it's complete, and we don't add to it. And I am not right with God because I somehow am able to, to uh, follow Jesus' example. That's not the way it works. We're saved by grace through faith. However, Jesus is an example, and he's a great example, and he's a great example in a crisis. His ability to speak truth to power, to have courage, to... to uh, to think about others even when he's being nailed to the cross. There's much we could learn from Jesus as an example, but he's more than an example. And he's not our only example. There are many others that we can learn from. And in fact, the Bible has a whole category of literature, a genre in the Old Testament of wisdom literature that is full of advice about how we can live well and there's lots of suggestions that we should be learning from others. So um, I want us to take advantage of that and think about some mentors in a crisis. And I got this idea because I was reading all these articles uh, in business literature about how to, you know, how to survive. And, you, you know, during these particularly unique times, you need to take care of yourself and you need to get your sleep and you need to... You need to not be waiting for the new normal and you need to do all these things or all these checklists and all these things that we're supposed to focus on. And as I was looking at all these lists and feeling a little overwhelmed, I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to set these aside and I'm gonna, I want to think about the examples, the insights that can be gained from some uh, of the biblical figures who navigated their own crises well. And today I want us to think about Esther because I want us to think about advice, uh, about advice. And Esther is a book that does that. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, the book of Esther is a little bit less than, than halfway through. So the book of Esther is an Old Testament book. So you go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second uh, Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and then well, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, 
and then Job, Psalms, Proverbs. So the book of Psalms is about halfway through. So if you go to the halfway through, you're probably going to be in Psalms or Proverbs. You back up a little bit from that. Uh, you get Job, and then right before Job is the book of Esther. It's an odd book in that it does not mention God, and um, it, it doesn't mention faith, doesn't mention Jesus. It, it's an Old Testament book, so not surprising it doesn't mention Jesus by name. But um, it's a book really about um, murder and lust and intrigue and power and about one young woman's quest eventually to do the right thing. So the events of the book of Esther take place in 460 B.C., which is around the time that Socrates was alive, and this is after Israel's glory days. As a matter of fact, it's way after that. So David and Solomon is the glory days of Israel. Then the the kingdom falls in half. The northern ten tribes are going to be taken over by the Assyrians, 722 B.C. We don't hear from them again. The southern two tribes are going to, they're going to last longer, but then they're going to fall to the Babylonians, and they're going to be hauled into captivity, exile for 70 years. Then the the Babylonians are going to be defeated by the Persians, and the Persians, although they're no Boy Scouts, are going to allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. And so we've got some rebuilding of the temple and all of that. However, some of the Jews don't leave. They stay there. They stay in what is now modern-day Iran, and it is in, is in that context that we have this young woman, Esther, who, who is introduced into the court of Xerxes, the king of Persia. And that's the backdrop for this story. So the book opens by talking about the fact that Xerxes was throwing a party uh, that lasted for six months, which makes it not all that different from some people's freshman year in college. During the last week, he goes all out and he throws a party that goes for six solid days. And uh, it's a banquet. And the last day, he calls for his queen, uh, a woman by the name of Vashti, to come and parade before his friends. And so I'm reading now Esther chapter 1, verse 10. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. So the guess is is that uh, she was supposed to wear the crown uh, and little else. She refuses, and verse 12 says, When the attendants delivered the king's command to Vashti, She refused to come, and the king became furious and burned with anger. So Xerxes feels humiliated in front of his friends, so he is talked into issuing a decree that says Vashti is now banished from his sight. She's never allowed to see him again. We don't don't know if if she cared about that. We don't know whether it actually was true. There's some indication that it, it didn't work out that way. However, while she is banished from him, Later on, after the party is over, he becomes lonely. So his advisors, think astrologers, his advisors suggest that they they hold a contest throughout the land to find the most beautiful young women from throughout the entire land to bring them into his harem, and then he is to choose the one that he wants to be his next queen. So um, 
I'm reading now verse, uh, Esther chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem of the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed into the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. And let the girl who pleases queen, the king be queen instead of Vashti. So this advice appealed to the king. So again, it's hard to imagine a much more pagan setting than this. If you're reading between the lines, obviously they're just trying to cater to his um, sexual appetites. The best looking single women are to be brought into the harem of the king. This is not the kind of stuff that many people expect to find in the Bible. They think it's a holy book for holy people about how to be even more holy. The Bible is actually remarkably real uh, in dealing with our condition, our needs, our temptations, our, our frustrations. And so uh, this is the context. And into this setting comes a couple people you need to know about. One of them is Esther. So she is an orphan, and she is beautiful. And, uh, and so... She is going to be, um, you know, you don't, need a, you don't need an Ivy League degree here to figure out she's going to play prominently in the story. The other is her uncle, Mordecai, who appears to be raising her as if she was his own daughter. So the king's servants go out. They find all these beautiful women. Esther is one of them. Esther actually is going to win over the contest. She becomes Miss Persia herself. Little orphan Esther becomes the queen of the land. And the king throws another big party, and he's in such a good mood that he lowers taxes for everyone. He's not our example. <laughs> okay, the, the whole theme here is good advice, mentors in a crisis. Xerxes is not the one we're learning from. Now, I don't have enough time to tell you everything that's going to happen in the story. Uh, suffice it to say that Esther becomes queen of the land. Around that same time, Xerxes appoints sort of a vice regent, a vice president of the land, a man by the name of Haman, who is very um, self-important, and he becomes the evil figure. Haman wants everyone to bow down to him. Mordecai, Esther's uncle, uh, who is devout in his worship of God, refuses to bow down to Haman because he will only bow down to God. So Haman gets mad at Mordecai. He furthermore decides he not only wants Mordecai killed, he wants everyone that looks like Mordecai killed. So he talks Xerxes into issuing a decree that all the Jews should be killed from throughout the land. And so that happens in chapter 3. Now, this is very much a pogrom on the order of Hitler's uh, final solution efforts to try and wipe out the Jews. And as we know, uh, the Jews are God's chosen people. There, there, is, a, there is a path uh, forward, especially before Christ's birth, that God is leading them on, and he is not going to allow the Jews to be wiped out. So um, what what isn't what I haven't explained well just yet, and I, I can't go into all the details in the book, but what you need to understand is, so Xerxes issues this decree to have all the Jews killed. He does not know that his queen, Esther, is a Jew. Nor does Haman know that Esther is a Jew. 
The person who knows that Esther is a Jew is Mordecai. And so Mordecai, when he finds out that this order has been given to have all the Jews killed, writes to Esther, who's in the palace, and says, Esther, you need to step up. You need to do the right thing. You need to intercede on behalf of your people. And Esther, in her crisis, in her 2020, in her COVID racial unrest, protests, riots, in, in the midst of economic upheaval, her version of everything going wrong, she initially says back to Mordecai, I'm not going to do it. It's too risky. It's too dangerous. Xerxes is not a stable guy. The, the less time I spend around him, the better it is for me. The last queen who crossed him ended up, uh, you know, she's, she's ostracized somewhere. I can't do it. And, and uh, I won't tell you all that happens. Other, you can read the book. I mean, it's, it, in addition to being the word of God, it's a fascinating little intriguing story. But uh, I will tell you this, that Mordecai writes back and he gives her advice. And he says, look, you have to understand, God wins. You have to understand, you always want to do the right thing. Who knows but that you have been appointed to just such a position, a royal position for just such a time as this. And it's the pivot point of the entire book. And again, it's, it's fascinating and it's, 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 it's a great story. But here's the thing. I want you to understand Esther doesn't want to get involved, but she ends up doing the right thing because she has a mentor. She's young. She's going to make a bad decision, but because she has a mentor who can see more clearly, who can be a little bit more objective, who has a little bit more life experience, she is talked out of making a bad decision. So my question as we begin this four-week series, Mentors in a Crisis, is do you have someone who is offering you that kind of advice? Do you have a trusted someone who can help you make the right decision? decision. In, um, in the Greek language, there are two different words for time. Chronos, from which we get the word chronology, it's just one second after the next, and kairos, which is sort of time that is pregnant with meaning, time that is special, time that is unique. And, and this is clearly a kairos moment. Uh, there is a sense in which a crisis is always a Kairos moment. Now, Rahm Emanuel has been given credit for the last few years of saying a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. That actually was not original to him. Many people have noted this, but I want to say this is a unique time, a crisis. Maybe it's a huge crisis for you, maybe not so much of a crisis, but this is a moment, and you don't want to let it slip away. Right? During these Kairos moments, during these difficult times, when we get knocked down, when our plans are upended, we want to do the right thing. We want, we want to be able to look back a year from now, two years from now, whatever, as we stand with God at the end and looking back at our life and to say, I made wise, thoughtful decisions when it mattered most. So I want to say, you need a Mordecai. 
you need a mentor. If you're young, and young for me increasingly is, you know, anyone under the age of 55, but I, I won't go there, especially if you are much younger than that. You need a Mordecai. You need somebody to help you navigate the inflection points of life and the crises and the kairos moments that you're going to hit. And if you are older, then you need to be a mentor. And I guess if you're in between, then you need to both have a mentor and to be a mentor. Now, there's a sense in which this is not particularly American. We like the rugged individual. We like the self-made person, all of that. Uh, Look, that's a big part of our problem. We actually desperately need each other. And I could argue that theologically. I'm just going to argue that pragmatically right now. We desperately need each other. And those of us that are younger, those of you who are younger, desperately need a Mordecai to help you navigate the challenges and the confusing moments that you're facing. For the last five years, uh, I have um, sort of leaned into my maturity and I uh, have been mentoring young senior pastors at other churches. And uh, I got pushed into this. I didn't feel ready, to be honest. Uh, Mr. Woodruff was my dad. Uh, but I had to sort of say, no, that's not the way to think about this. And uh, although I didn't feel ready, uh, I was persuaded I probably needed to be ready. And I sort of think that not feeling ready is one of the qualifications of being ready. Uh, although just because you don't feel ready doesn't mean you are ready. But I, I decided I wanted to see increasingly the fruit of my life growing on other people's trees. Right? I wanted to do what I could to help younger men and women thrive. And uh, I've actually always been zealous to get good advice from other people. And uh, when I was in my 20s, I used to drive two hours down to Seattle uh, to see any one of three men who were 10, 15 years older than I was, who I was desperate to learn from. And so it was a four-hour trip. I mean, it wasn't a small deal, but anytime I could get lunch with them or breakfast with them, they would give me a couple hours. I would drive down because I had so many questions about how to navigate life and ministry, and I, was, I, I really wanted to be a sponge. And, and again, we see this modeled in Scripture. Barnabas is the one who helps Paul move out of his previous life and become uh, a leader in the church. And then Paul is going to help Timothy. And then Paul is going to write to Timothy and say, Timothy, the things that you have seen uh, in me, right, you need to entrust to others who are going to entrust to others still. This mentoring idea, we see it with Christ, we see it with others. We need to be coached and we need to be coaches, You need safe, honest relationships where people can hear what's going on in your life and in your heart and can offer you counsel. Maybe these are people in your small group. Maybe not. I spent time on the phone uh, three times uh, this week calling people who have been mentors in my life, asking them for advice because I'm facing challenges. I'm just trying to figure out the best way to go. I wanted people to talk this through with. Did it a couple times last week. I'll probably do it a couple times next week. And so, look, uh, I don't want to use myself as an example of how to do it right, and I am, but I I try not to do that often. 
And you might say, well, you don't have lots of opportunities to do it often. That would be truer than you think. But I want to say, look, we're looking for mentors in a crisis. Esther provides us with insight. She, she is going to make the wrong decision, but she's just smart enough to realize that she needs to defer to someone else. And so I want to ask you, do you have a Mordecai in your life? And if you're more of Mordecai's age, do you have an Esther in your life? This makes life so much richer, and it's also important. So in the next few weeks, we're going to look at other biblical characters who help us manage the crises in our life. Let me pray. Father, as I pray for my ability to learn from others who have walked before you, men and women who can speak truth into my life, I pray that I can do that for others, and I pray that all those listening, especially those that are young, will recognize the need and opportunity to have older, wiser, more seasoned people help them navigate the challenges that they face. Help us gain energy in this whole process. Help us become increasingly like Jesus, our ultimate example. We pray this in his name. 